Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, episode 159, The Knife, the Gavel, and the Noose. First, I want to mention that I'm going to be speaking at the upcoming Intelligent Speech Conference on June 25th, starting in the morning and running all day. It's going to be a Zoom event with 35 sessions featuring a ton of podcasters from shows like British History Podcast, French History Podcast, History of the Second World War, History of Sakharovo, Georgia, and many, many, many more. Now, I'll be on a panel and doing my own talk about the migrations of the Circassians into Bulgaria and around the Ottoman world. Uh, yeah, I had a topic around the th- theme of borders, and they were an interesting group kind of crossing borders, having borders cross them, and kind of mixing in with the Bulgarian history we've talked about, but something that I wouldn't normally go into so much detail about on the podcast. So it seemed like the right kind of topic to me, and I'm excited to share it with you all. So I really hope some of you can join me and the rest of the podcasters featured. And right now, tickets are available at an early rate of $20. If you sign up with my code Bulgaria, you'll also get 10% off. So yeah, check it out. I'll put a link in the description and hope to see some of you there. One other quick thing, thanks to our new patrons. We've got Brendan Nelson Weiss, Ryan Foster, Rebecca, Stefka P., Thomas Stauffer, and Luke Schuster as well as to Preston P. for increasing their pledge, and an enormous thank you to Svetlin Nikolov for his extremely generous donation. And apologies for all the business, but let's get into it. Last time, we covered the evolving political situation in Serbia, which saw the country gain a more liberal constitution, and also saw its king abdicate in favor of his 13-year-old son. In Austria, the heir to the Austro-Hungarian throne died by suicide, leading to the emperor's nephew, Franz Ferdinand, becoming the new heir. Meanwhile, in Bulgaria, the war hero Kosta Panica was arrested and ultimately executed for planning to overthrow the government. This shocked the country and the military establishment. But despite new plots, the country was still stabilizing, enabling Prince Ferdinand to finally travel abroad. And, of course, Russia continues to try to overthrow or at least destabilize the Bulgarian government, but without much success. Now, all of this brings us to a new year and a new decade, 1890. I'd like to start by talking about how Bulgaria was, or wasn't, industrializing by this point, through the example of a textile factory in Karlovo. This was a project funded and spearheaded by the famous Evlogi Georgiev, the old entrepreneur, he's now more than 70, and has amassed an immense fortune, uh, which he has spent on major projects like funding Sofia University. There's a big statue of him and his brother in front of the main university building today. Well, now he's attempting to open a factory in his hometown of Karlovo. The cornerstone was laid on April the 10th, 1890, and the whole thing was completed in less than a year using imported materials and overseen by an architect from England. Jumping a bit ahead in the timeline, the factory will open in 1891 and employ 140 workers from the region. Now, 
The idea was to help kick off industrial production in Bulgaria. But Gergiev also wanted the factory's revenue to support local schools and just generally kind of give back, right? He's 70, he's very wealthy. Uh, he, he doesn't feel the need to use this as a money-making kind of adventure. He wants to give back to the man, his hometown. However, intense foreign competition and a real lack of local experience with industrial production meant that the factory was really slow to kind of get up and running and failed to earn any profit. In his frustration, Gergeyev wrote, quote, If the state does not come to the aid of Bulgaria's young industrial development, and if Austria continues to flood Bulgaria with cheap and counterfeit materials, the prospects for our national industry are worse than bleak. End quote. So he's not mincing words there. And if someone as well-financed and experienced as Evlokia Gergeyev is having trouble developing a profitable factory, you can see the problem because it's kind of one of those if he can't do it, who can situations. In other words, Bulgaria is facing the same problem that many developing economies are facing at this point in history and frankly even today for certain economies. It's an extremely difficult problem because they, you want to compete on an even, even playing field with companies and countries around the world. However, those other outside forces have vastly more experience and resources and are nearly always going to outcompete you. However, the alternative, state support, high protective tariffs on imports, and general kind of protectionism, right? Putting up barriers at the borders to make sure domestic industry has a kind of comfortable and protected sphere in which it can develop. Well, that's got its own problems because that makes imports very expensive. It in, in, you know, basically it, it hampers economic growth, right? Talk to most economists. I think most mainstream economists are somewhat free marketers. They'll talk about how free exchange of trade is the best kind of recipe for overall economic development. But that also makes it really, really hard for countries to compete and play catch up when they're, you know, starting a bit late in the process of industrialization. It's a little easier to understand now. We've got a lot more, you know, decades and centuries of experience in it. But particularly at this moment, it's a very, very tricky problem. And Evlogi Gergiev's attempt to create this factory really shows how hard it is, even for someone with his resources and experience. But, well, that problem's not going to be solved anytime soon. Still, Bulgaria and its economy is developing and integrating further into the broader world economy. One example of this is economic fairs are becoming increasingly common in Bulgaria and around the world. The next year uh, in our timeline is going to see the famous Colombian ex exhibition in Chicago, uh, which I will talk about uh, because, of course, the famous writer Aleko Konstantinov visits and writes a nice book about it. But that's two episodes in the future. But more importantly, the first agricultural exhibition is about to happen in Plovdiv. So Bulgaria is starting to join in this international trend at this time in history of you know, hosting the, these big festivals and fairs to show off all the products that they make, have foreign companies and such come and show off their products, and to generally kind of encourage international trade as well as, to some extent, kind of cultural understanding. But getting back to 1890, the spring of that year saw the unraveling of the Panitsa plot, which I discussed in the last episode. But while Bulgaria was mostly kind of quiet in those early months, that was not the case over in Berlin. Now, two years previously, Kaiser Wilhelm II came to the throne and very quickly started to butt heads with Otto von Bismarck. 
This resulted in the now 75-year-old chancellor finally resigning in March of this year, the day before the 19th anniversary of his being in the position. And well, you can imagine, I mean, even from the brief mentions of him on this podcast, his reputation, the fact that he basically ran Germany for 19 of its most important years in its history as it, you know, transformed from the kingdom of Prussia into the German Empire. This is a big deal, right? Bismarck really shaped the kind of geopolitics and the kind of diplomatic relationships of Europe at this moment. And he's now gone. And that means from this point onwards, German policy is going to be driven far more by its Kaiser, whereas the previous Kaisers were a lot more hands-off, kind of letting him run things, more figureheads. Wilhelm II is not like this. He is active, he has opinions, and he wants his way. You know, he, he wants to see Germany shaped in the way he envisions it. And what this means is that Bismarck's very carefully laid and balanced foreign policy is going to steadily go out the window and be replaced by something far more aggressive and designed to propel Germany towards becoming a global power at record speed. Now for Bulgaria, this is a high risk, high reward situation. Bismarck's dedication to balance and maintaining the status quo in Europe, except on occasion when it benefited Germany, obviously, but still that general kind of dedication to balance in the status quo more or less kept Bulgaria and the Balkans the way it was, right? The, the message from Berlin to Sofia was generally just like, mm, just stick to the Treaty of Berlin. Just, just, you know, keep out of everyone's way. Try not to cause any problems. And, you know, when Bulgaria wants to do something like unify with Eastern Romalia, it's like, could you just not? Because it just causes us problems and we don't really care about you. And as kind of connected to this, Bismarck was also always trying to keep the Russian Tsar happy because he didn't want Russia and France to kind of unite against Germany and threaten it with a two-front war. And so a lot of keeping Bulgaria down is kind of just a byproduct of keeping the Tsar happy. So, in other words, Bismarck largely tried hard to maintain the status quo, and Bulgaria wanted to change the status quo to expand its territory, to get its sovereign recognized, all these sorts of things all things Bismarck worked to prevent. But now that Wilhelm is in the driver's seat, he's much less interested in making sure the Tsar of Russia is happy. So this may provide an opening for Bulgaria to make some gains in the international arena to take advantage of the shifting geopolitical sands. But losing the stability that Bismarck provided it to Europe also brings incredible danger. And all that is to say, time will tell how the downfall of Bismarck and the rise of Wilhelm II will impact Bulgaria. But the main events of the relatively quiet year of 1890 were, you could say, church-related. From May to June, the Bulgarian Exarchate held a synod in Rusay to discuss the violence exhibited towards its bishops by the Stambulov government back when they refused to leave Sofia the previous year. Remember, they refused to recognize Ferdinand and then refused to leave Sofia when they were ordered to. And ultimately, basically, the police just grabbed them in the early hours of the morning and kicked them out of the city. Well, none of my sources have a lot of details about the synod, but it's clear the church is still very upset over that incident. However, they soon had yet another victory from Stambulov that, well, convinced them to maybe lessen their stance against him. Stambulov's policy of working closely with the Ottoman Empire once again paid off, 
as the Sultan approved the appointment of three Bulgarian bishops in Ottoman Macedonia, specifically in Skopje, Veles, and Ohrid. Now, obviously the Greek Patriarchate was furious about this, but the Bulgarian public could now see that Stambolov's approach to foreign policy and his decision to move closer to the Ottomans to obtain concessions from them was paying off. And soon, further diplomatic victories were added to this, as Austria-Hungary and the Ottomans began having private audiences directly with Prince Ferdinand, which sort of de facto meant recognizing him. Now, this may seem small, but still, it was an important step and showed that these states were more or less ready to recognize him, even if they weren't willing to do it officially. Now, no surprise, Russia furiously protested, as they always do, convincing the Ottomans to back off from their original plan to formally recognize Ferdinand. But still, to all observers, it felt like the recognition of Ferdinand was now just basically a matter of time. And so the issue was a lot less pressing to everyone because it seemed like it was just going to happen eventually. And yeah, Russia was going to be mad, but you know, big shrug emoji. Even the Bulgarian church finally had an audience with the prince late in that year, basically reversing their previous stance of not recognizing him either. So things are going well for Ferdinand and church relations are improving. Then to cap all this off, Stambolov's party won a convincing victory in new elections held in August. Now, again, there's the there was the usual intimidation and manipulation that Stambolov always did in these elections, but it seemed the public was actually responding somewhat positively to his policies and the stability they were bringing. Bulgaria had just experienced two good harvests in a row. The rail line from Yambol to Burgas had just been completed. You know, things were looking pretty good in Bulgaria at this moment. However, despite all these successes, Stamilov had one single overriding fear. Ferdinand might be assassinated. Stamilov knew that if this happened, it would instantly undo all the work he put in for the past few years and, frankly, even decades if you want to argue for it. In particular, Stambolov knew that in the event Ferdinand was killed, he would need the army to keep order. However, particularly after the Panitsa affair, the loyalty of the army simply could not be relied upon. It seemed likely that in the event of such an assassination, army officers would support a variety of different factions and players, and the result would be chaos, possibly even civil war. Now, besides the obvious move of protecting Ferdinand, the best protection Stambolov could offer against this was finding him a wife to produce an heir. Because in that case, his assassination would merely produce a regency, which was far less dangerous than just suddenly having no sovereign. And... In general, the would-be assassins of Ferdinand would not want a regency because that would allow Stambolov to once again kind of gain perhaps even more control. And so basically, the moment Ferdinand was married and had a child, assassination becomes far less likely. But while Ferdinand agreed with Stambolov on all these points, and Ferdinand's mother, Clementine, wanted nothing more than to see him establish a dynasty, Finding a suitable bride willing to marry an unrecognized sovereign in a, let's say, complicated part of the world? Well, that was far easier said than done. To cap it all off, the Bulgarian constitution clearly stated that the heir to the throne had to be Bulgarian Orthodox. And so Ferdinand would almost certainly have to find a bride willing to have her children brought up in a different religion. 
because, well, remember at this point, the vast majority of royals who were Orthodox would be from the Russian Empire, and the Tsar is not going to let any of them marry Ferdinand. And Bulgaria's Balkan neighbors, they've got some Orthodox royals, but that's a pretty small pool of candidates, and I don't even know if there were any actual candidates. I know the Serbian Serbs don't have anyone, so it'd be maybe if there happened to be a woman of appropriate age in Romania or Greece, but it's frankly unlikely. So all that is to say, a search for the right candidate is beginning at this time, but everyone involved knows it's going to be extremely difficult because, well, basically they need to find a Catholic or a Protestant who's willing to marry uh, the Catholic Ferdinand and raise Orthodox children. But before they could tackle that problem, the assassins came for Stumbleoff. One evening in March, Stumbleoff and his minister of finance, Christo Belchev, were walking through the streets of Sofia, having a chat. Belchev was new to the cabinet, and, well, he was having some trouble adjusting, and Stambloff was sharing some advice on how to be, be a better cabinet minister. They were followed by a young Macedonian named Dimitar Teofekchev, I hope I got his name right, and I'll quote Duncan Perry's description of what happened next. Quote, both Stumbleoff and Belchev were stocky. They resembled each other in height, build, and demeanor. Both had beards. When they left the case, it was well after dark, and they turned down Military Road, heading for the Hotel Bulgaria and passing the city park. Stumbleoff had been walking on the left of Belchev, but crossed over to Belchev's right after meeting an acquaintance and talking to him briefly. The two then resumed their discussion about how to present a report to the Council of Ministers. The night was gloomy and thunder was rolling, and a pistol report rang out, apparently fired from within the gate of the city park, ten paces from Karavelov's house. Stamlov, who instantly ran away from the assailants, cried out, Run, Belchev, run after me! But Belchev did not follow him. At one point, he was heard to shout for help. As Stambolov was fleeing, perhaps he had covered about 50 yards, he heard two more shots, and then a shout, Stambolov is killed! He turned and saw several men, but could not make out anything distinctive about them. He ran to the nearby 4th police precinct and returned with four officers. Belchev was lying just inside the gateway of the city park, dead. Evidently intending to hide in the garden, he had been shot in the arm and through the heart. End quote. Stambolov informed Belcha's widow about his death personally and was the chief mourner at his funeral. But besides his deep sense of loss over Belchev's death, Stambolov was determined to find the perpetrators. And he wasn't the only one. The population of Sofia and the country as a whole were shocked by the murder and many civilians joined in the search for the perpetrators. Soon, Sofia's jails were packed with regime opponents as the dragnet expanded. But despite this and the 20,000 level reward, the assailants remained at large. Torture and other extra-legal methods were used to extract confessions as Thambolov used the assassination to its fullest extent, settling political scores, largely against supporters of Karavelov and Tsankov. In other words, many opponents of the governments, who had nothing to do with the attack on Stambolov's life, were now in the crosshairs. Even Petko Karavelov himself couldn't escape the net as he was found guilty of instigating the assassination and imprisoned in the famous Black Mosque, which is now the Church of the Seven Saints in Sofia. 
Shockingly, four men were actually sentenced to death, including members of the intellectual elite, which further kind of shocked the country who were not used to seeing members of this, you know, elite class face such punishments. One of them was actually involved in the plot, although most of those involved in the murder escaped Serbia. Remember before I mentioned how Serbia was no longer a safe haven for bandits and those acting against the Bulgarian government? Well, my assumption is that now, the, with the abdication of King Milan and his younger son taking control, his younger son being a little more anti-Bulgarian, I'm assuming that policy has kind of shifted again, and that's how they were able to basically escape to Serbia. But despite all this brutality, the irony was that the assassination attempt had the opposite effect from what it was intended. Stambulov's position was buoyed by new public support, which gave him political cover to move so harshly against his opponents. He even expanded his attacks outside of the usual circles, arresting and expelling a French journalist who had written scathing articles against him. This led to France breaking off diplomatic relations with Bulgaria for a few months, although Stambulov was supported by England and the Ottomans in this whole ordeal, and it didn't amount to very much, but it showed just how widespread the crackdown was. And for now, that crackdown is in full swing, as the trials of the men arrested are scheduled for 1882. And while jumping ahead to these trials, they were effectively military trials, overseen by the same judge who had actually ruled in the Panitsa case. The extent to which popular and political feelings were hot was shown by the fact that most of Bulgaria's best lawyers actually had no interest in being involved as def- you know, involved in defending these men uh, because they were afraid of how it would affect their careers. The exception was the famous writer Aleko Konstantinov, who did defend Karavelov and one other defendant. Again, in uh, two episodes, I'll cover his trip to the Colombian World Exhibition, but back to the trials. Over the course of this series of trials, it became clear that the assassins intended to not only kill Stambulov, but actually to kill Ferdinand as well. It became clear that Russia was their financial backer in this endeavor, and ultimately, as a result of all of this, death sentences were handed out And, well, it was hardly a surprise to anyone. Of course, it wasn't clear just how Karavelov was involved. Accountants seemed to agree that he probably knew about the plot, but likely wasn't involved in it. But still, Stambulov wanted him executed for the political threat that he posed, and ultimately his association with the plot, knowing about it presumably, got him a five-year sentence. By the end, all the executions, all the torture, all the prison sentences constituted a pretty serious blow against, in particular, the radical Macedonian movement, which wanted the Bulgarian government to take more immediate and direct actions to annex Macedonia, as opposed to Stambulov's more gradual policy of building influence in the area while endearing Bulgaria to the Ottoman government. Now, the assassination of Belchev also kicked off the first of several small fights between Stambulov and Ferdinand. The prince was looking to expand his own power and influence in the government and wanted to replace the assassinated Belchev with his own candidate, Nachovich, who, you'll recall, was a conservative in Stambulov's first kind of proper government, but resigned back in 1887 over opposition to Stambulov's methods and became a diplomat in Vienna. Now, obviously, Stambulov did not want him back in his cabinet, but ultimately Ferdinand prevailed. Now, in the spring of 1891, another event occurred which further bolstered Stambulov's position as the kind of defender of Bulgarian independence against Russia. Now, around this time, a little earlier really, uh, a Russian clerk who had been stationed at the Russian legation in Romania 
felt that Russia's policy of assassination and all the bribery and such in Bulgaria was all rather dishonorable. And so he stole 10 years worth of documents detailing all of Russia's actions in Bulgaria during that time, including the overthrow of Battenberg and just all of it, right? He took these documents and he fled to London. Now, somewhat amusingly, Russian newspapers simultaneously loudly proclaimed that these documents were fake, while at the same time, the Russian government brought a legal case against the man for stealing them. So, you know, pick a side there. But when word of the trove got to the Bulgarian government, they managed to contact the clerk and purchase the documents. So he traveled to Bulgaria under a fake passport and delivered them. These documents laid out in plain language what had been long apparent to insiders, that since 1879, Russian diplomats and agents had been working tirelessly to transform Bulgaria into a pliant Russian client state through bribes and assassination and the general sowing of chaos. Of course, none of this is a surprise to any of you listeners of this podcast as we've covered it all in detail, but the clarity with which these documents showed what Russia had been doing behind the scenes shocked the general public and constituted yet another blow against Russophilic elements in Bulgarian society. But far from all these big geopolitical developments, another major event this year brings us back to a man I've mentioned before, Dmitry Blagov. Born in Macedonia in 1856, he grew up immersed in the Bulgarian National Revival, leading him to study in church schools, participate in the April Uprising and the Russo-Turkish War, before leaving to study in Odessa and St. Petersburg. There, he encountered a very different set of ideas, becoming enamored with the works of Marx, and becoming a founder of Russia's very first Marxist group. I'd mentioned before, right, he returned to Bulgaria in 1885 to spread socialism there, and that brings us to this moment in our story, because in July of 1891, he gathered supporters from around Bulgaria on Mount Buzluja in the Central Balkan Mountains to found the Bulgarian Social Democratic Party. Now, for now, this is a tiny group with next to no influence, but it really is the beginning of a, a socialist movement in Bulgaria. And to this day, the spot where it happened is a pilgrimage site for Bulgaria's Socialist Party. Uh, trying not to comment too much on contemporary politics, but you know, you'll still every year on the, that anniversary see them going there. And you might know the spot more, you know, better for its famous or infamous flying saucer-like monument that sits there uh, that everyone just knows as Buzluja. But if you were ever wondering, that's why that monument was there. It's commemorating this event. Now, within less than a year, Bulgaria would also see its first Labor Day celebrations, and a rival socialist party would be founded by Yanko Sokozov, and the two are going to have their whole, you know, merging and unmerging and all this kind of shenanigans that I'll discuss as we go along. But all that is to say, around this point, Bulgaria finally gets a proper socialist movement. Otherwise, 1891 finished off with the passing of a law establishing Bulgarian government control over education throughout the country. Not super exciting, but it's an important step in ensuring universal access to education, and universal education is an important step in nation building, so it's an important step for Bulgaria. Throughout the year, the country also saw its first insurance company founded, the famous Eagles Bridge in Sofia was completed, and Bulgaria's first intercity telephone line was established between Sofia and Plovdiv. And with the finish of 1891, I'll finish this episode. You know, Stambolov seems to be ascendant, right? He survived an assassination attempt. He sent many of his political opponents to prison or to the gallows. 
and has seen his foreign policy obtain concessions from the Ottomans on Macedonia, and has even made progress towards getting Ferdinand recognized. However, he's still very early in the process of finding Ferdinand a bride, Bulgaria is still struggling to build industry, uh, and yeah, just the general danger of Russian-backed assassinations of Stambolov and Ferdinand has definitely not gone away. So next time, we'll see Stambolov and Ferdinand make some progress in finding him a bride. Uh, we'll see Stambolov basically continue to have successes and failures as the population starts to get a little tired of his domineering rule of Bulgaria. As the Stambolov period starts to enter its late stages. So, you won't want to miss that. This episode was written by me, Eric Halsey, and produced by me as well. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven, and as always, you can check out more information for this episode, as well as info for attending that uh, conference where I'll be speaking, all in the episode description. And I'll catch you all in the next one.